Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. Today's program is brought to you by Athletic Greens, the most comprehensive daily nutritional beverage that I have ever tried. And I'll tell you what, you've heard me say on this podcast before that I got rid of my multivitamin that I had been taking for years and started exclusively doing Athletic Greens because it gives me everything I need. And my wife's been you know, watching me drink this at the beginning of every morning. Uh, she finally was like, all right, I want to try that. And now we are officially an Athletic Greens household. And it helps with recovery. It helps with um, just making sure that no matter what you're eating, that you're staying on top of your vitamins and minerals. They have 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients. And it's really helpful to keep your immune system strong, which obviously is really important right now more than ever. And right now, Athletic Greens is doubling down on supporting your immune system during these winter months. And they're offering our audience a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five travel packs, which is what I've been using out here with your first purchase if you visit our link today. That link is athleticgreens.com slash majority. That's athleticgreens.com slash majority. Athleticgreens.com slash majority. I'm Jason Kander, and this is Majority 54, the podcast that helps Americans who voted for progress convince those who didn't to join our majority. We actually are doing something a little new. We have an interview on the back end of this episode. My friend Ruben Gallego and I sat down and talked about the insurrection at the Capitol, the way people are being treated who are, I think, accurately referring to it as trauma. Ruben is a, is a fellow combat veteran, and it's a, it's a really interesting conversation, so I would encourage you to stick around for it. But before we get there, Ravi, what's going on this week? Well, we are in the middle of the impeachment trial. Actually, you know, we're recording this at 12 p.m. Eastern time on Wednesday. Literally, the, the moment of the start of the opening arguments and the case from the prosecutors, which are the Democratic 
members of the House. And so just to remind our listeners, the way this works, and I know you all know this by this point because it's an annual event now, impeachments in this country, the House votes to impeach, which means to charge the president uh, with crime. And then the Senate uh, holds a trial and will vote on whether they want to convict or not. And you need 67 votes in order to convict a president. Where we are right now is that last night, there was a debate and vote on the question of constitutionality of this whole process. So there are two parts of this. Like, is this constitutional to hold a president for impeachment after they leave office? And then the second question is then on the merits. Like, if we do think it's constitutional, did the president commit impeachable acts? And so where we are last night, we cleared the first bar in a 56-44 vote uh, with six Republicans voting along with Democrats, to say that the president did, in fact, commit impeachable acts. That broke down roughly like we talked about last week, with Democrats saying that you can't give an exception to a president after an election uh, in their last days of office in January to commit crimes. There has to be a consequence for that. And then Trump's lawyer giving a rather rambling speech that even Republicans and Trump himself called out as kind of a mess, basically just saying that this was a political witch hunt, Democrats even earned praise from Republicans here. Senator Roger Wicker from Mississippi said that Democrats sent a better team than in 2020 and says they were very eloquent. But then when asked if he would change his mind, of course, he said no. And so where we are right now is we are in the in the opening of the merits phase of this, which is where we decide uh, or the Senate decides now that we've cleared the constitutional bar, did the president commit impeachable acts? Jason, we talked about this extensively last week. I imagine some of our listeners might be a little exhausted by questions of impeachment and struggle to figure out like how to think about it as, as, a, as a matter of consequence. How should they be talking about this with their family members? You know, it's funny because you and I, when we were talking about talking about this again, we were like, gosh, we're kind of bored with impeachment. It is a little bit boring, but I think it's mostly because the stakes are so much lower now, right? Like on the one hand, I wish that this had been done and that McConnell had allowed this to be done before the president, before President Trump left office. On the other hand, I'm glad that we are witnessing it without this like horrible anxiety of like, will they get rid of this guy? Like he's already gone. So it's, it is a weird dynamic and how to talk about it. I mean, I can recall a buddy of mine, he's a union organizer and a, and a political operative, and he was all over the country doing political work. And he, I think at one point he was in Louisiana, um, trying to get folks registered in some of the really low income parts of New Orleans. And this was during the first impeachment. And he was like, you know what nobody brought up to me in these exclusively Democratic parts of town? Impeachment. He was like, it's not like they were against it. Obviously, they all think that Trump ought to be impeached. They're just like, this doesn't affect my life. And so if somebody is, I think, coming at you on this, like trying to make these arguments going on the offense, like, oh, you know, this is just bitter. It's just, you know, spite and all this stuff. One, like you got to make a decision. Do you want to engage on this or do you want to engage on policy? If you want to engage on policy, then just say, hey, this ain't going to affect your life. This ain't going to affect my life. Why do you and I got to argue about it? If you feel, as I do, that it is worthwhile to have a conversation about historically the place where we ought to put Trump like in our history, then I think you can get into that. And what I would do is I would encourage people or I would even pull it up on the phone. I would show them the video evidence that was shown to the Senate, because I went back yesterday and I watched it and it's video. A lot of it is video we haven't seen. And it's, it 
seen previously. It's video uh, from a lot of the protesters, and it is done in real time. So it shows uh, what President Trump was saying. It shows then what happened, you know, in terms of, and you see people like bursting their way in, breaking things to get into the Capitol, fighting with police. And then you see from the perspective of the members, you see people crouching down, worried about gunfire in the galleries, right? And you see how close they got to getting them. And it becomes really apparent that had they reached any of the members, they would have killed them. And so if you're going to go down that road, I would, inc- I would make people watch that because it is, I think, virtually impossible to watch that and not feel like the president is 100% guilty. Yeah. And his lawyers are trying to say that uh, he bears no responsibility for this because he didn't tell them to storm the Capitol. He asked them to go down to the Capitol and that he didn't have the specific outcome, meaning going to the Capitol and killing people in mind. Here's where I come down on this, which is you could take any one part of Trump's actions and defend it and say, well, when he says fight like hell, he meant this, right? And like each one of those, you could have a reasonable doubt, right? And say, all right, maybe he just meant fight, like fight like rhetorically and don't give up and stay in the streets. When you put the whole body of evidence together, it becomes very clear that this is a guy who very early on before the election was spinning that it was going to be stolen after the election was spinning that was stolen. Uh, as it was mentioned in the articles of impeachment on January 2nd, called the Georgia Secretary of State and tried to bully the Georgia Secretary of State into, quote, finding votes, which is now the subject of a cr- criminal inquiry in Fulton County, uh, for which the president is not immune and he could be criminally charged and prosecuted in, in Georgia for that action. Then before the rally, he basically, he was promoting the rally, spoke to people, told him to go down to the, the Capitol, fight like hell. Then afterwards, he then was forced into these, uh, these statements about being peaceful, but all while mixing in things like calling out Mike Pence, calling him a traitor. And then uh, this is what he had to say after it was very clear that there was violent destruction. And he may even at this point, I'm not sure, have known that there was even um, there were even deaths. He said, uh, we have to have peace. So go home. We love you. You're very special. And then he later tweeted, remember this day forever, exclamation point. At the very least, if you're arguing with somebody about this, be like, look, it's not going to, we're not going to, he's not going to get convicted anyway. Can you just agree that this is conduct that is unfitting of a president of the United States? That's how I would handle that. Well, and the, I mean, it was totally complete. The only thing you left out is that tweet that was four hours after the, after the storming of the Capitol, where he said, you know, remember this day forever begins with, these are the things that happen. Like he's basically like, this is what you get. When you These steal an election from to remember. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but like, he's like, hey, this happened because we were wronged. Like, not like right. this was wrong, right? And by the way, they weren't right. wronged. And, and so, yeah, like, I think you're right. I think to our point of this show, which is how do you then use this as a way to, to do more than just relitigate the Trump era, right? It becomes how can you vote for people who care so little about what happens in the country that they'll they'll go along with this in order to protect themselves politically, right? Like you gotta it's a bank shot and you gotta use it as one because it's it's a fair it's not a, like an unfair bank shot. Like that's what they're doing. Well speaking of that, uh you sent us uh, a video over the weekend of Ben Sass who I believe was addressing the local Nebraska GOP, correct me if I'm wrong, who had voted to censure him over his support, at least moving forward with Donald Trump's impeachment and some of his uh, 
post-election um, castigating of Trump. Let's play that video, or at least a part of it, and, and react to it. Personality cults aren't conservative. Conspiracy theories aren't conservative. Lying that an election has been stolen, it's not conservative. Acting like politics is a religion, it isn't conservative. You are welcome to censure me again, but let's be clear about why this is happening. It's because I still believe, as you used to, that politics isn't about the weird worship of one dude. Here we are, we're in impeachment, uh, where the president incited an insurrection in the Capitol that threatened the very safety of his colleagues. And we already have enough GOP senators on record saying that they will not vote for the impeachment, that it's his, his uh, acquittal is a foregone conclusion. Jason, like, does Sass have a future within the Republican Party? Yeah, and I think it's mostly because he just got reelected. Who knows what the election or the or a primary campaign uh, that he would run for reelection in in six years would be about? My guess is it won't be about this. I mean, stuff doesn't last six weeks in America anymore in the news cycle, let alone six years. And he knows that. Like, I'm not trying to take all the credit away from him, but he knows that. The other thing is, uh, Nebraska is kind of a different. Uh, it, it's a horse of a different color, and and a lot of people don't know this, you know. But like, if you if you're here in the Midwest, and if you pay attention to which states come up with the really crazy, like, oh, this state legislature passed this insane thing, it's generally not Nebraska, and that's because they have this unicameral system with like, and they don't run on partisan uh, labels and and all that stuff, and that has sort of, in a positive way influence the rest of Nebraska politics. You don't see a lot of Democrats elected in Nebraska, although it happens. Um, but what you do see is a brand of conservatism that is a lot less angry and is, is a little more uh, ideologically just, you know, usual conservatism. And so that the, for those two reasons, I think he'll be fine. But, you know, is a Ben Sass type going to have a lot of way, you know, a lot of big future in, in the party, generally in the Republican Party? Not right now. It doesn't look like it. Like, I can't imagine... Ben Sass running for president in the Republican Party and having any shot in hell, can you? Yeah, I can't. And I think what struck me about it was in this video, it's not that like, oh, he doesn't sound like your typical Republican senator. Yeah, that's the case. It's that he sounds like your typical Republican voter who's the kind of one that I would likely be friends with, like here in, in Kansas City, like people I know from other things who are Republicans or this is the kind of stuff that they say. Now, in Sass's case, he didn't vote for Trump, but in most cases, they are people who usually did, but they don't like him, right? And they don't like the Republicans who love Trump, but they're still Republicans. And so I think it's useful for folks who listen to this show who don't live in parts of the country where they, you know, run into these folks all the time to go and watch that so you can get a sense for what it sounds like when Republicans who don't like Trump and maybe even didn't vote for Trump, but voted for all other Republicans. And unless we make a good case to them, we'll keep voting for Republicans. What it sounds like when they talk about this. You know, you think about political courage, right? And political courage being something akin to doing the right thing, even when there are significant consequences for it right and so you know with sass it's a little tricky because he just won re-election and he, he he turned up his rhetoric after he won his primary but one person i think definitely should be singled out here is liz cheney republican leader kevin mccarthy tried to get liz cheney 
to apologize for voting to impeach President Trump in front of the Republican caucus last week. We have to make sure that we uh, are able to convey to the American voters we are the party of responsibility, we are the party of truth, uh, and, and that's going to require us to focus on substance and policy and issues going forward, but, but we should not be embracing the former president. And I have a lot of problems with her father and the larger Cheney effort, but given where we are in this country, it's really important for us to recognize political courage when it exists. And here we have somebody who's in leadership and who uh, knew that she was going to face a backlash within her caucus and who has to run every two years and is certainly going to get a Trumpian challenger. I think there's this like this debate out there on Twitter of like, we shouldn't lower our expectations. And yada. It's not like I'm, I'm saying that Liz Cheney should be mayor of New York. I'm saying that she's she's showing courage on a foundational issue. And right now we don't have the luxury of holding Liz Cheney accountable to what the marginal tax rate is, right? It'll be a great world when, whenever that exists and we can actually exact political consequences on people based on ideological debates in good faith. We're not there. Right now we're at a core defense of our democracy phase, which means that we have to walk and chew gum at the same time. We need to not that it even matters to Liz Cheney, but I think for us, it's like we have to recognize courage when it exists, hope for the best when it comes to this internal Republican civil war, because we need the Republican Party to be better because it's roughly half, a little bit less than half uh, of you know people who identify with a political party in this country. And we want them to be better because if the Republican Party is better, America is better, right? Yeah. Look, if the Republican Party continues to be a place that rewards people for you know backing violent insurrection well that's just really dangerous for america right like if if that if it continues to be the case that the the best path to say the republican nomination for president or the republican nomination for anything at any level is to be okay with people storming the capitol and trying to kill the elected members of congress and their staff and law enforcement officers in the, in their in their path on the way to do that if that continues to be the case that's incredibly dangerous for America, like for all of us. I mean, you can't have like if you think of America as having like two parents, the Republican and the Democratic parent, you can't be like, well, it's OK, because right now mom is making all the decisions or dad is making all the decisions. Never mind the fact that like, you know, the other parent is a violent psychopath who lives in the house like that. It doesn't work that way. Like you you need both to be nonviolent parents who are not going to burn the place to the ground. Right. Uh, you know, minus the violence part, I was thinking, wow, that actually is my parents that you described. So, <laughs> Sorry. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> at least, at least not... they don't live in the house, I guess. You know. yeah. Ravi, you're in Costa Rica right now. Tell the folks your reason for why you're using ExpressVPN. Well, a lot of websites we use block you from accessing your account when you're not in the United States. So I've been using ExpressVPN to access all that other stuff. Using ExpressVPN is a really accessible way to ensure that you can access everything you need when you're out of the country. But the same mechanism is the reason why it's very secure. It means that you're basically opening up a secure window. That means that like, if you're on some kind of unsecure network, et cetera, it's just an extra layer to protect the data that you're sending across the internet. And just think about how much of your life is on the internet. Uh, sadly, every site that you visit, video you watch or message you send gets tracked by ISPs or other tech giants who can then sell your information for profit. So stop handing over your personal data to ISPs and other tech giants who mine your activity and sell off your information. Protect yourself with the VPN I trust to keep me private online. Visit ExpressVPN 
expressvpn.com slash majority54. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash majority54 to get three extra months free. Go to expressvpn.com slash majority54 right now to learn more. Mi dispiace molto per la partita di football. If you don't speak Italian, you probably don't know what that means, but basically it means I'm really sorry about the football game. Uh, and so... Uh, <laughs> You too can learn to speak Italian or whatever language you want to learn from Babbel, which is the number one selling language learning app. One of my goals for the new year was to uh, rekindle my love of Italian. Uh, and Babbel has made the whole process addictively fun and easy with these bite-sized lessons that you'll actually use. Uh, and what I really love about Babbel is that as part of most lessons, you listen to a conversation in the language that you're learning. And then they ask you a bunch of questions about what was said. And so it really trains your ear to hear organic conversations that are kind of cross-topical uh, so that when you do go to a country that speaks that language, you're not totally lost. Right now, when you purchase a three-month Babbel subscription, you'll get an additional three months for free. That's six months for the price of three. Uh, and you can just go to babbel.com and use the promo code MAJORITY54. That's B-A-B-B-E-L.com code majority 54 for an extra three months for free Babel, it's the language for life this week in misinformation this is a fun this week in misinformation because we are on to what i would like to call the consequences phase of misinformation one big piece of news this week is that a uh, voting technology company called smartmatic filed a lawsuit against Fox News for $2.7 billion, alleging with some evidence that Fox News deliberately spread lies that Smartmatic was uh, either driving or complicit in uh, a stolen election. And the basic facts here are that Smartmatic was founded by uh, a Venezuelan immigrant who moved to Florida and started a voting technology company. And I think it was back in 2000 when he started this company. So it's been a while. And that company has now grown to a very successful company. It does a lot of international business and a little bit of domestic business. And that on many, many segments in Fox News, both Fox News commentators like Lou Dobbs uh, and guests, like repeat guests on Fox News, made claims that they were founded by people close to the late Hugo Chavez. Uh, and this was kind of like a backdoor way of stealing our democracy. The problem is that Smartmatic was only involved in L.A. County elections in the United States. It wasn't involved in any swing states. This is an easily provable lie. It was an, is a thing that a very wealthy, successful news network should have picked up on and fixed after it was repeatedly claimed on its broadcast may have been uh, deliberately spreading this lie, right? But the big point here is that Fox News is now on the hook for a lawsuit that, if successful, could cripple it uh, if you combine it with the already declining ratings of Fox News. Jason, how do you think about a case like this? I know we got to be careful about wielding libel laws against news organizations because we've all heard about cases like Weinstein and stuff like that where news organizations are bullied around by the legal system. But is this a good thing, this lawsuit? You know, not to get too, uh, you know, lawyer geeky on this, but like 
the laws make a lot of sense in this area, in my opinion, because in this case, what Fox is arguing is, hey, no, it doesn't count that we let these people say all this stuff or that our commentators said this stuff because Smartmatic is a public figure, which is debatable, but okay, you know, let's say it's a public figure. Let's say it's a publicly known entity and therefore you should be able to treat it as a newsworthy issue. Okay, then the law says if you had a reckless disregard for the truth, which could easily, by the way, be like Fox News' slogan, uh, a reckless disregard for the truth, then you can be held liable. And so I, depending on what court they're in and that kind of thing, I could easily see them being held liable. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I, I think it it is a good thing if we don't allow news organizations to say, yeah, that was all bull, but it was newsworthy. Like that's not an acceptable way out. I think it'll be really interesting to see that point you make about whether this is a public figure or not. You know, there was a case uh, a long time ago when we were kids with Richard Jewell, who is the uh, the Atlanta alleged Atlanta bomber who turned out to be totally innocent uh, and actually was like a, a hero trying to save people. And the, he sued the news companies at that time, and they made two arguments. They said that he was a voluntary public figure because he had thrust himself into the spotlight by trying to save people. Uh, and then the second argument they made was that he was an involuntary public figure just because like he became famous once they started uh, making these accusations against him. And the courts said the first one was fine, like he could be a, a voluntary public figure because he made that decision, but not the second. The, this is interesting for the Fox case because they're arguing, Fox, that once uh, this company was thrust into the spotlight by allegations made against it by other public figures like Giuliani, etc., it became a public figure. And that has never really been tested in American law before. But like you said, the, that's only a legal argument, right? That's just an argument to say, what standard do we bring? If if they're, if Fox is successful in that point, then they still will be liable if, like you said, they're held to be reckless, right? And it's hard not to see that they're reckless when Lou Dobbs was on TV telling people that Smartmatic sent votes out of the country so that it's not auditable and making all these crazy statements like this. And you can kind of see the writing on the wall for Fox and the fact that they just fired uh, Lou Dobbs this week. They they must know something. I think that this is a real problem for Fox. Who knows where it winds up? Like these things rarely ever get to a jury. But it se- if I were Fox with their ratings declines and be on the hook for billions of dollars in this case, this could be serious. You know, to me, the takeaway here is like gratitude to Smartmatic. This is a big thing to take on, right? I mean, to, to decide, like, we're going to be willing to make an enemy out of Fox News in order to deal a blow to this thing in, in American media culture that says you can just say whatever you want and you don't have to fact check anything and you don't have to be responsible for what's said on your platform. You know, this could make a big difference. For sure. And it's already having a change in some of the behaviors of these media companies. I can't remember which company it was. It might have been OAN or something it had the, the Smart Pillow CEO on. And oh, it was, was uh, Newsmax. I saw that. Mike, uh, thank you very much. Mike, Mike, I, we at Newsmax have not been able to verify any of uh, those kinds of allegations. We just want to let people know. I'm revealing all the evidence on Friday of all the election fraud with these machines. So I'm sorry if you think okay. it's not uh, Mike, it's real. I, I, can I ask our producers, can we uh, get out of here, please? The anchors on, on, a, on a fairly irresponsible network 
had to interject repeatedly and, and cut this guy off because he was repeating these claims. And you got to think that lawsuits like this uh, are driving that kind of behavior. At the end of the day, these folks respond to one thing, money, either getting it or the threat of losing it. And so if you want to change the culture around truth telling, change the way that it's incentivized. I mean, they're not going to change for any other reason. Either it's going to be because they lose viewers or they lose sponsors or they lose lawsuits. Those are the reasons that they're going to change. And so that's why I do think it's important. And, you know, look, I doubt this is going to come up with people. Like, I doubt like your you know conservative brother-in-law is going to bring this up. But if this continues, there will be more of these conversations about the idea of like, oh, now we're going to have this litigious culture, this lawsuit culture where everybody's going to sue everybody. And I think you know, looking ahead to that, the answer to that around, you know, your post COVID dinner table when you're in the same place is going to be, yeah, you know, it's not a bad thing if there are things in, in American, uh, you know, legal infrastructure that actually say, no, you know, you can't just like tell lies about people when you know that they're not true. You know, where I could see this showing up at the dinner table is if it's woven into a larger narrative of Josh Hawley's book and parlor and all this and being like, we're just trying to shut down debate. But you know, what I would say to that is, notice what Fox News didn't say. They didn't defend this by saying it was true. And you got to ask the question, what does Fox News have to say for itself that that's such a powerful news network that there that that claims that it's going to inform you is repeatedly even at best, uh, mistakenly misinforming you about the most important thing in our country, which is the sanctity of our elections. What are we defending? You know, Without some sort of consequence for misinformation, misinformation will continue. There has to be a consequence for it. And we've we've learned that it's unfortunately quite rare that that, that, that consequence is going to come in the voting booth. The reason that there's not arsenic in your drinking water and that, you know, the cars don't just roll over uh, like they did for a period there is not because anybody got state legislatures or Congress to do anything. It's because lawsuits happened and the good guys won. And it may end up being the same way in the economy of ideas. Let's talk quarantine corner really quickly. Jason I was thinking about you this Sunday. Tough loss. How are you feeling? Yeah, that sucked. For those who don't know, the Chiefs lost in the Super Bowl 31 to 9. Biggest loss of Patrick Mahomes' career. First time he's ever had a game where he hasn't uh, you know, thrown a where he hasn't had a touchdown. And um you were texting me and saying, you know, and as a Bills fan, like I respect this opinion. Like you're a Bills fan, you've been through this. You said, you know, it, it'd be much worse if it was really close. And I'm sure that's true. But on the other hand, you know, my team got humiliated. And uh and so it's like I, I would rather it be like they played a good game, but you know, but it was just like what I take away from it is this. In the last six minutes of that game, if you watched, Patrick Mahomes was playing like the score was tied. And it was six minutes down 22 points with no chance to win. And, you know, my son went to bed uh, when we were down 28-9. And the team has given us such hope that True went to bed and he was like, oh, I hate that I'm going to miss the comeback. You know, and then he came in at five in the morning to ask, did we come back and win? And what was cool was in the morning... I, you know, I was like, we didn't win. He was upset about it. And he had many thoughts on the first half and, and on the refs and that kind of thing. But then I showed him those last six minutes. And I was like, look at how hard Mahomes is playing because you just play hard. And like, that was a cool lesson to be able to tell my son. So this is what I've worked through. And this is how I've worked through it in the last few days. Well, uh, I have something a little bit more positive. Uh, I'm working on a 
a show concept. It's like a, a sports show. I can't say more yet uh, about a female lead. And so I've been watching a lot of stuff that's of like a similar genre. And so I started watching uh, Queen's Gambit, a show about a, a female chess player. It's on Netflix. And I just want to recommend it. I know I'm not breaking new ground here. It's become a fairly popular show, but it's such a wonderful show just tonally. And uh, it's a period piece, which is, I know is really hard to pull off, but it's just got such great casting, such an, an, an interesting new tone to a show like that to like a you know chess is kind of sports adjacent you know it's very competitive one-on-one and it makes just a a few surprising choices that make it just a thrilling and entertaining watch so i can't recommend it enough i have not watched it yet have you ever seen pitch no there was one season of the show Oh, I was thinking of a movie. Never mind. About a female Indian baseball player. I forget the name of that. No, no, no. You're thinking of the right thing, but it was a show. There was one season of it, and she's a pitcher. She pitches for the Padres, and there should have been more than one season, and there's still talk about bringing it back. And uh, my friend Eli Addy was, I think, one of the main writers on the show, and uh, it's just fantastic. And uh, given what you're working on, you should maybe you should maybe watch it. Oh, yeah. The thing that it does so well is that it starts out as a, a show about uh, you know a woman playing professional baseball and it it remains that all the way through but what it also quickly becomes is just a really good baseball show you know it makes that transition into you realize like oh this is just it's just a good baseball show All right, we're going to talk to my friend Ruben Gallego now. Ruben is a congressman. He represents uh, the Phoenix, Arizona area. He is the son of Hispanic immigrants. Uh, He's a veteran. He's a community leader. Uh, He deployed to Iraq as a Marine, saw combat there. Then he he came home. Uh, He was elected to the state legislature, did great things, got elected to Congress. And I will fully endorse Ruben for many things, one of which is awesome guy to hang out in Phoenix with. Yeah. I mean, I've done it on multiple occasions and, uh, you were just uh, lots of good taco trucks and uh, good entertainment there. So it's good to see you over zoom. I kind of wish we were in, in Phoenix. I, I miss our taco truck expeditions, but, uh, hopefully you get to do that soon, Jason. Yeah, man. Spring training. As soon as that's a thing that people can go to again. The reason I want to talk to you and it kind of occurred to me when you and I were texting back and forth earlier this week, when I had this op-ed in the Washington post about, you know, the folks who were in the Capitol, whether they're members of Congress or staff or anybody else, you know, people are shaming them for referring to what happened as trauma. And really, I think that's dangerous. And so I wrote this op-ed mm-hmm. about it. And it was funny that they actually used this very heroic looking photo of you standing on your desk during the Capitol siege, directing traffic. And I texted it to you, sent you the link and was like, hey, your photo is in my op-ed. So, you know, let's start there. Like, what was happening in that moment? Well, at that moment, um, the Capitol Security had told people that they were deploying tear gas outside to stop the rioters. We know they had already breached the Capitol and they were trying to get into the House floor. The problem was that they had never, ever instructed anybody about how to either open these um, gas masks or how to put them on. And also... The manner in which they told them, you know, people were very scared. They were hyperventilating. They're about to put on a hood, uh, which probably means they're going to suck in more carbon dioxide than oxygen. People were going to pass out. And so I started kind of giving instructions to people about how to open up their gas mask uh, container and then how to don it, but more importantly, how to stay calm. Uh, so I was trying to explain to people, you know, it's important to stay calm. 
breathe normally as possible. And to also reinforce like, you know, do not, you do not have to fear tear gas. Tear gas is not going to kill you. It may sting, but I was trying to basically calm people down. And eventually after I had given enough instructions, the next step is when they evacuated us, I moved to another section of the house floor and started getting people to leave from the back to forward, kind of like a flight attendant. Uh, and then eventually at some point, the people in that gallery just couldn't hear anything. Uh, so I got up on a chair and stood up and was shouting directions and giving orders from the floor to the house gallery and, uh, and just trying to kind of help communicate uh, to everybody. Well, and at that point in the photo, a lot of the people around you are, are prone, like they're, they're taking cover behind things. So I assume that at that point, like Capitol Police had notified people of the threat. I mean, also, I guess you probably at that point, you assume that that crowd is armed because you've seen enough. Yeah, they, they, they asked us to get into prone position because they, they, they believe that there may have been shooting may have may begin at some point. What was that like for you? I mean, I think I know the answer to this, but. Well, I think for me, I mean, it was, I mean, it's, I snapped back into, uh, uh, you know, something that I think I hadn't seen like in 15 years. Um, largely because I saw a lot of people freaking out and it reminded me of like some of the younger guys I served with that, uh, you know, had, had, uh, situations when shit hit the fan in, in, um, Hey, am I allowed to swear? I'm not allowed to swear. Yeah, right? you, you do what you want. Uh, uh, when it hit the fan, like during a firefight or, or something of that nature. Uh, also I think for me, it was, it was somewhat like therapeutic or, or calming for me to actually try to bring, order to the chaos yeah and uh so in a sense yes i was helping other people but i think it was helpful for me being able to 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 be part of the solution uh and i think that probably helped me uh you know deal with uh what was going on right now at that point i think that's an important part of it like one of the things i learned in therapy was that like really my brain is just constantly looking to control every situation right Mm -hmm. and that's one of the things that comes out of trauma and and so, yeah, like you're, but also you're trained. I mean, that's the other thing, right. right? I mean, and that's what they do in the army and in the Marines is they, they put you through these paces over and over again so that you'll react in a certain way. And, uh, and so I'm glad that you were there and I'm sure a lot of other people were too. You know, I, I, I already said in the intro that you were a Marine in Iraq, oh, sorry, our Marine Marines get pissed when I do that, but that you were in Iraq. Uh, and, uh, and I know a little bit about your service, but you know, give people a little bit more context. Right. Well, I was enlisted in the Marine Corps uh, infantrymen. I mean, I wasn't just enlisted. I was like the bottom of the <laughs> bottom of the uh, the ranking list there. I was a Lance Corporal most of the time there. Uh, I was with a, an, an awesome company called Lima 325 based out of Columbus, Ohio. Unfortunately, you know, we saw a lot of combat and my company took what to date, unfortunately, is the largest uh, KIAs uh, of the Iraq and Afghanistan war lost uh, my best friend, lost my best friend and lost lots of friends. And, you know, um, I was a young man, I was 25 and, you know, I still live, you know, still live the war, unfortunately. And, you know, when I, you and I were already friends uh, when I made my announcement. Um, In fact, the first, like anybody who has ever been around two veterans knows what it's like when, when they meet the first time, it's like, two dogs at a stoplight from different cars. Like <laughs> they don't see anything else. They see each other. Uh, and literally the way you and I met is I didn't even see you when we met. I was the keynote speaker at the Arizona democratic party, right. uh, 
convention or dinner or whatever. And I knew we had met because you tackled me from behind. Uh, That's right. Well, I was trying to get a prom pose with you and you just refused. And someone took the picture and then you sent me the picture and said, thanks for going to prom with me. Um, (laughs) But anyway, so that's how we met. We were already friends. And then when I made my announcement, you were one of the first people to call. And uh, I remember you were like, are you growing out your PTSD beard yet? And I was like, yeah, I am. Uh, And then you also, of course, also said some nice things publicly. But so you were the first person I thought of even you know, to talk about this with even before I saw that they had used your photo in that op-ed. And so let's go to what I was trying to get at in that op-ed was that uh, there is predictably a chorus of people who are shaming folks like AOC, others who are talking about this as a trauma. And, you know, I get a lot of credit for, you know, being a public person who was public about this, but a lot of people don't realize that you were doing that before me. And it, it is really important. So like from your perspective, what does it mean when folks, whether they're combat veterans or whatever, when they get shamed for talking about trauma? Like, what does it mean to everybody else? Well, you're only going to perpetuate the problem. Um, and that's and that's where this is, you know, PTSD is a it can be a silent killer uh, because people hide their trauma. They don't talk about it. They don't go to therapy. Uh, they don't deal with it. And what happens with PTSD, and I, this is just personally speaking for me, is that I let it get to a point where it nearly took over my life, right? Um, you know, instead of actually dealing with it, talking to somebody, or just being open about it, you know, I try to hide it, uh, you know, some of it through just work. Like I was constantly trying to justify my existence by being successful in life. Um, or through, you know, alcohol, you know, uh, go out drinking with my friends and try to find an excuse to go out drinking with my friends, things of that nature. Right. And, you know, eventually it, you know, it just deteriorated in terms, in terms of who I was, who I was and, and in my relationships with other people, you know, I think there's, we've, we're turning a corner when it comes to veterans, uh, and PTSD. I think people now aren't ashamed to talk about it. I keep in contact with a lot of my, my, uh, my friends, uh, from Lima company, and we openly talk about our PTSD and our problems, but, you know, trauma is never, is, is not just limited uh, to your time in the military. I mean, I actually probably had PTSD before I was in the military. I grew up in a very uh, rough situation, had a, you know, a horrible father who probably just screwed up and fucked up my head for a little bit. Um, And there's tons of people that have, have different types of trauma in this, in this world. People have been domestic abused, people have been sexually assaulted. I mean, all these things that um, really can eat at somebody's soul and really stop them from being the best that they can be. What happens with these trauma shamers is that, you know, you're essentially stopping people from getting the help that they need. And it, and it spirals and you create this whole environment that is deteriorating. And so did I handle it better? You know, what happened on January 6th than my colleagues? Yeah, maybe like I was, a, I was a little stunned that day. I went home, uh, had one, Scotch, thank you very much. Uh, watched uh, some TV and, and put some um, some Otis Redding on, which is usually what calms me down. And then you know, the next day was better. But it shouldn't take a you know hardened uh, Iraq War veteran uh, to say that uh, you know that what happened was wrong or that you should be at my level. That's not what we want in society. You know, we want people to be able to experience their full lives, and when they experience trauma, that they're able to process it well, uh, and, and be able to move on. So these people that are shaming it, they're not even doing it 
they're doing it just because they want to suppress their, the voice of these people, not because they feel bad about them or because they, they disagree with them that they even experience trauma. Yeah, it's funny because, well, not funny, but it's confusing because on the one hand, you can see you can see the political motivations here, right? It's, 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 it's predictable. I mean, particularly given that one of the first people to talk about it publicly was uh, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, like who there's not very many people on the other side of that aisle who are, who are going to miss a lot of opportunities to disagree with her. So that, that part's not surprising, but I guess what bothers me is that for all the people who are, who are saying something to shame people for talking about this, for political reasons, I feel like it's likely that you can sort of feel within that building an unspoken sort of judgment from others or an unspoken, I'm just because I've been around this, an unspoken unease, even from people who may agree with them, right? Like a sense of like, is it okay to talk about this? Because I don't know about you, whenever people talk to me about their trauma, maybe it's a car accident, maybe they survive cancer, whatever it is constantly people have the disclaimer with, you know, I wasn't in a war or anything. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I definitely got that, but I mean, I always tell people like everything's relative. We're all human beings. You know, you can't, again, I, you can't expect people to have the, the, the reactions of the military because this is civilized society. I don't want people to be hardened by war. I want them to, to, you know, be soft and civilians. That's a, that's why I, I went into the military. So other people can like live a, a good life. I don't, you know, hardening people into that manner where they have this callous soul is not what we want in this country. And I don't fault anybody. Everything is relative. I think it's awful that people are doing this. And on top of that, it's not even an expectation of them being like the military, because like you and I, I think we're pretty tough dudes. We were made into pretty tough yeah. dudes. And like, we're just sitting here talking we about how we, went, yeah, <laughs> we're, how we went to therapy <laughs> for it. Right. So like, I'm a fucking member of Congress and I saw PTSD. Yeah. Right? <laughs> I mean, right. So I remember once in intelligence school, um, a guy came in, like, I think a chaplain and he was talking about PTSD. It was one of the few times they ever talked to us about it. It was before yeah. I deployed. And he said something that really thankfully stuck with me. Uh, I wish I had maybe taken it to heart a little more, but he said, PTSD is a normal reaction to an abnormal situation. Absolutely. And that's the thing, like, it, you know, if somebody has a car accident or whatever it is, like one brain doesn't know what another brain experienced. And I went 10 years saying to myself, guys like Ruben, like they earned the right to PTSD. And but because my risk was kidnapping and I was in meetings and I was alone a lot, like I was telling myself, well... I don't know that that counts. And the truth is like, what a waste of 10 years. And so I guess the point is for all these folks who are trying to shame these people, they might be causing a, a Republican colleague uh, who is thinking like, gosh, I haven't felt right. They're causing them to not go get help when, when they need it. I don't well, think they, also were... causing, they might be causing themselves their own problems, you know, and that may be when what they're projecting with... about. Right. Yeah. Cause they're projecting or, or they don't, they may not be projecting right now, but in the future when they do have some trauma, cause it will happen one way or the other, you know, they're not going to, I think, have the, um, the ability to, to openly say without shame that, you know what, I need help. Like I've been traumatized, I've been hurt and I need to figure out what's going on here. Why do I feel this way? You know, in the efforts to score political points, um, I don't think they, they, they understand that um, the long lasting effect is really going to go beyond just Congress, right? This is a thing that um, you know, in, if, as a member of Congress, you're supposed to be looking out for your constituents. There's a lot of these people's constituents that 
experience trauma at some level almost every day. Uh, and they're hearing that message that unless you're a veteran uh, and saw combat or some bullshit like that, uh, you, you can't have PTSD, um, which is just ridiculous. Yeah, I, I, uh, I'm curious what what is sort of the vibe about this within the Democratic caucus? I mean, you know, we've talked about like the shaming that comes from, you know, sometimes for political reasons, sometimes because of whatever, and maybe it's aligned with their ideology from the Republican side. But I'm sure there's also some element of like within the Democratic caucus, some maybe whispers of people being skeptical of things. I, I'm just curious what that's like. Well, I mean, I've been, I've been very, uh, I've been pleasantly, not even surprised. I shouldn't be surprised. The caucus, I think has been very understanding with each other about what they've dealt with. You know, uh, as part of the, for example, the commercial Hispanic caucus, we actually got some experts to come and talk to us. And we had a, a conference call uh, on it and we talked about what we saw, what we felt and what we're still feeling. Um, I talked to individual members afterwards because they reached out because they were, you know, feeling horrible and scared. And, and this is days, days later. You know, I think the Democratic caucus has been very, very supportive. Now, individually, members have, I think, have been feeling, unfortunately, cheapish about it. They do apologize to me. Like, I know you have, you know, you've dealt with something worse. And I automatically stop. I'm like, this is not a, uh, a pity game, right? Mm -hmm. This is not a comparison. This right. is not a contest. Yeah, it's not a contest. You're hurt, right? Yeah. You're traumatized. But that is, you know, that is what happened and that's what matters and, and trying to get to understand where you are right now and, and what we can do to put you in a more comfortable place is the, is the most important thing. I don't know what's happening on the Republican side, but certainly I feel very comfortable that the Democrats have been more understanding with each other. It's interesting because on the, in addition to the people comparing it to war, because unfortunately PTSD has become like you said, something that we finally got to the point where we kind of accept the idea that people who are in uniform uh, are allowed to have it and, and not uh, on the civilian side. But the problem, in addition to that, is like everything you do is a public figure. Like, obviously, I was aware of that and you were aware of that, that like the second you say that, like people are going to scrutinize it, people are going to. And now mm -hmm. imagine doing that and you you didn't serve. I mean, that level of scrutiny. I mean, I have a lot of respect for what AOC did because mm. I'm sure it gave I'm sure it gave license to a lot of other people in the caucus, in the building, in the right. country, unrelated to that event, to be like, okay, if that's trauma, then well, what I experienced. It's also a double whammy of her being a woman of color, too. Right. Because like, it's not just that she has uh, PTSD. It's like, oh, you're a woman, therefore you, that's why you're feeling that, which is not true because you, we know that men will suffer of PTSD at, at greater magnitudes than, than women. And so, you know, there's a lot of stigma attached to, I think, you know, women being weaker and, and quote unquote unstable, and then also being of color. It's just, you know, it's a, it takes a lot of courage, I think, in order for you, for you to talk about it openly, knowing, by the way, you know, AOC is a very smart person. She knows, she knew what it was going to bring in, you know, what element of the discussion will come in because of that. Um, and that's, you know, it's unfortunate, but, it, you know, it's incumbent upon leaders, public leaders to talk about PTSD in every way. I mean, I know hearing other veterans talk about PTSD encouraged me to deal with it. I know that I've talked, me talking about it has encouraged other veterans to deal with it. And, you know, you save lives by, by doing that. And sometimes you save your own life. One of the things that people don't understand is that, you know, at some point we're all going to have the experience, most likely every every 
every human is going to, at some point before they actually die, have the experience of feeling like they might die, right? You know, obviously, I guess there are exceptions to that. But but when you do that, uh, you know, the younger you do that, the, the farther it is away from the time when you think that might happen, like, it changes your brain chemistry. And, and I, you know, watching, for instance, the video evidence and the impeachment managers put forward, I watched that and thought, how could anybody in that building not have thought I might be about to die? It's not just a matter of like trauma or how it affected people or whatever. Like there's not another logical conclusion to mm. reach when you see that mob and when you hear it, I don't think. Well, I mean, one of the benefits, and I think people also forget that PTSD is a defense mechanism, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a defense mechanism um, in the sense that your brain is hardwired to adopt you to survive. And, you know, one of the things that, that I thought was interesting is that I was probably the first person to figure out something was wrong before things really hit the fan. Um, <laughs> you, because you're hypervigilant. Hypervigilent. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, I, t I like, I automatically took off my jacket. I had a couple of the younger guys. I'm like, you guys need to take off your jacket. Like we may need to fight out of here. And this is before they even took off. I said so the gas masks are ready to yeah. go. I, I noticed it's funny. I saw that when I saw that picture, I noticed that your jacket was off and I thought, I thought that exact thing. I thought Ruben was ready to and go. I, and I was ready looking around for a weapon. Yeah. I mean, like, I mean, you know, in that sense, like, you know, PTSD was a experience, not, not, not just PTSD it was, it was, experience it was designed to, for actually for it to do, which is to survive, to put me in the, in the mindset that I needed to get ready to, to fight or, or flight, you know, you know, I, I, I actually look, remember looking over at one point and I saw one of the security guards just pacing a capital security guys just pacing. And, uh, and I saw that I'm like, I, I, I've seen that look on a man's face and I've seen that pace before and it was from 15, 16 years earlier. And I just knew at that point it was about, to, it was about to go down. It's, it's interesting because I remember when I started to get better, like when I, you know, in therapy, when, uh, among other symptoms, when my hypervigilance, when I started to get better about it, you know, when I started to do the homework they gave me, going to restaurants with my back to the door and all that stuff. I remember, and I'm curious if you felt this way, I'm sure you probably did. I remember being freaked out about losing, like I, I knew I wanted to get past those behaviors and I knew I wanted to stop with the coping mechanisms and I wanted to stop feeling that way when I was in public. But I also was like, I, maybe this stuff keeps me safe. Like, cause I'd always thought it had. So, I mean, it was like a security blanket that on the one hand I knew right. was not good for me, but I didn't yeah, want to like, I'm, I'm not even, I'm not even there. I mean, I'm at the space stage of understanding it and, and, and it's relevance to me and how it's, how it kept me alive and why it's happening and why I kind of cling to it. But in terms of trying to, you know, get rid of it, it, it is like a safety blanket, right? Security blanket. And you know, in one instance, in this instance, it, you know, it makes a difference in other instances, it will stop you from having a full, you know, a full life and a full, you know, yeah, it's disruptive. Relationship with people. It's interesting. I mean, understand. And that's a big thing. Like, and that's why I wanted to have this conversation is that for anybody, it's a teaching moment for anybody listening, who's experienced any kind of trauma. It's also for anybody who was there on that day, like, such a huge part of it is understanding why your brain is telling you the things it's mm -hmm. telling you. Because, you know, I remember my therapist nicknamed PTSD the monster. And he was just like, look, we're just going to call it the monster. And we're here to learn initially the difference between what's real and what the monster 
is making you feel right and like mm -hmm. uh and you know the monster tells you a couple of things it says you're in danger all the time and it says i'm not the one telling you this it's always been this way you've always been this way i've always been here and that's mm -hmm. the thing that like if you were a staffer at the Capitol that day and you're refusing to acknowledge it as a trauma, you can't do the rest. You, you, then the monster's in your head and you can't address it. Oh, and you, you'll, you'll, you'll take care of it, but it won't be healthy ways. That's the problem. It's like, you'll, you'll try to, you'll try to suppress it in very unhealthy ways. And the most important thing for me is like explaining to myself what I'm feeling when I'm feeling it, mm -hmm. which has been, I, I still have problems driving on the passenger side of a car and we get too close to a curb because like, I'm still freaked out about, you know, IEDs. And uh, I literally feel my butt clench. And uh, you'll hear a sound coming out. Like, it's like a sound I used to make for some reason. And I still do it. And now I have to actively, like I actively stop, think about it. And then, if, you know, if someone's in the car with me, I actually explain to them why mm -hmm. I do that. Yeah. Because like, it's, you know, it's, you, can't, you shouldn't be ashamed of it either. Right. Exactly. The difference it made for me, just after just a few weeks of therapy, just the process of knowing, oh, oh, I know what that is now. That's actually not real. It didn't end it. You still had the reaction, the bodily reaction, yeah. but you went, oh, I know what this is. And right. it just ended sooner. Ruben, thanks for doing this. Thanks for having this conversation with me. Um, obviously, you and I could just hang out and, and trade goofy PTSD stories all night. And it, perhaps yes, we sure. will in the near future. But in the meantime, to close the show, we do this thing, grab an oar, which just, it's an opportunity for you to promote something that you'd like people uh, to, you know, get involved in. It could be a campaign, it could be a charitable cause, it could be related to what we talked about, it doesn't have to be just some way that people can take action. Is there anything you want to throw out there? You know what? I'd love for people to just learn more about my, the guys I served with. Uh, so if you have time, go look at the history and read about the history of, of Lima 325. You know, I think I, I, I would make, want to make sure that their story is, is told and I want uh, them to, to, to be proud of the service uh, that we did. All right. Tell these good folks where to find you on social media. Uh, you can find me at your sorry, dog my, is oh, right in your face. This is awesome. Right in my face. On Twitter, it's at Ruben Gallego, R-U-B-E-N-G-A-L-L-E-G-O. And you can find me uh, also on Facebook on that. <laughs> sorry, she needs some attention. This too. is awesome. Thanks, Ruben. I appreciate it, man. I'll talk to you soon. I appreciate it. Thank you, Jason. I'm at Jason Kander on Twitter and Instagram. Ravi is at Ravi M. Gupta on Twitter and Instagram. Thanks, everybody, uh, for listening. This episode was a little different. Feel free to go into the uh, comments and let us know what you thought of the idea of like doing the normal episode and then having a conversation tagged on at the end. Let us know if you like that, if you don't, that kind of thing. Um, but as always, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today. Majority 54 is a Wonder Media Network production. It's produced by Grace Lynch and Edie Allard. Theme music provided by Kemet Coleman. Special thanks to Diana Kander. Hi, listeners. It's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varva Lucas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on 
What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.